0: Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. All of the major U.S. stock market averages finished the week with strong gains, particularly on Friday. In fact, the Dow Jones was up 823 points, pretty much closing on the high of the day. That was a 2.7% gain in one day, and for the week, the Dow Jones rose 5.4%. Remember, we closed last week on the lows for all of these indexes. We were at bear market lows, with the exception of the Dow Jones, which has yet to officially move into bear market territory. It was only down 19.1%. But now we've had a pretty significant bounce off those lows. In fact, the Dow Jones is now 6.2% above the low that it set last week. Of course, we're still down quite a bit from the highs. The Dow is 14.8% below its all-time record high. The S&P had an even bigger jump on Friday, up 3% and up 6.5% on the week. That index is now down just 18.8% from its record high. Now, that's still a big drop, but I guess technically it's lifted itself above bear market territory because it's no longer down 20%, although it's still in a bear market, even though it is technically out of that bear market territory. The S&P is 7.6% from its lows, so a bigger bounce than the Dow, and a bigger bounce still in the Nasdaq, which was up three and a half percent on Friday and seven and a quarter percent on the week. But the NASDAQ is still down twenty eight percent from its highs. So even though we've risen nine point four percent from the lows, we're still pretty deep in bear market territory. Although we're almost officially in a correction because if we go up 10% from the lows. That would signify a correction, but it would be a correction in a bear market, meaning the bear market was still going on. We just had a bit of a rally, and the expectation would be for the bear market to continue and for the market to make new lows, which is certainly my expectation. The Russell 2000 also up big on the day, 3.2% gain, up 6% on the week. Coincidentally, the Russell 2000 is now also 28% 28% below its record high, and it is 7.5% above the recent low. Looking at the more volatile, more speculative names, the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF, it was up 4% on the day and up 18% on the week. Now, that fund is still down 71% from its record high, but it's now 30% above it's low, which technically would put it in a bull market. But if you look at a chart, it looks like anything but a bull market. So this is clearly in bear market territory. I don't know if you can apply these bull and bear markets to something like the ARK Innovation Fund. It's more like an individual stock because there really is no diversification. Despite the fact that you've got this portfolio, it's a portfolio of virtually identical names. And so I don't think you can really look at bull and bear market. I think this 30% rise from the lows is probably a good opportunity to sell. And again, looking at the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is highly correlated with the ARK Innovation Fund, it was up 1% on the day, pretty disappointing rally for the Bitcoin bulls, but it was up 11% on the week, but the trust is still down 76% from its high. So it's actually doing worse than the ARK Innovation ETF. It has bounced off its low, but only 15.4%. So not as big a bounce. So a bigger decline and a smaller bounce. Bitcoin itself too is doing pretty bad. It's down about 70% from its high. As I am recording this podcast on Saturday morning, it's a little bit above 21,000, around 21,200. That's about 17% above its recent low, which was a little bit below 18,000. In fact, the high that I saw Bitcoin trade was around 21,500 and changed So about a 20% bounce off that low. But to me, we're simply consolidating here at a new lower level. 20K is the new 30K. And just like 30K proved to be a false bottom, the same will prove true, I believe, of 20K. We're going lower. We're just going to consolidate first. We're going to sucker in some more buyers, and then the rug is going to be pulled right out from under them as we get a new collapse to new lows. Now, look at the price of gold as a sharp contrast to Bitcoin. Gold didn't have much of a day. It was only up about $4. And in fact, it was down about $20 on the week. So definitely a risk on week. Lots of buying in risk assets, not a lot of buying in gold. Gold is now down 12% from its high and it's 6% above its low. So if you look at those numbers, gold is less volatile than any of the major stock market indexes. In contrast, Bitcoin is substantially more volatile than any of the stock market indexes. So how can Bitcoin claim to be digital gold when it's actually digital risk? It trades nothing like gold. It trades like the riskiest stocks in the ARK Innovation Fund. But while gold itself is less volatile than stocks, the gold and silver mining stocks are proving to be more volatile than even the most volatile tech stocks. While the GDX and the GDXJ were up on Friday, they were not up that much considering what happened to them on the week. The GDX was up 2.6% and the GDXJ was up 3.7%, but both of those indexes were down on the week. The GDX was down 2.4% and the GDXJ down 3.2%. In fact, the GDX, again, which is the senior gold miners, is now down 29% from its peak And the GDXJ, the junior mining stocks, is down 32% from its high. So both of these indexes are down more than the NASDAQ. Despite the fact that the underlying fundamentals have improved significantly for gold mining stocks, while at the same time they've deteriorated substantially for overpriced tech stocks, yet we've seen a bigger drop in gold mining stocks. And the reason for that is that investors are very pessimistic about the future price of gold because investors are very optimistic about the ability of the Fed to get rid of the inflation that it didn't even see coming and then assured us was transitory. They're now convinced it's going to go away. And so why hedge an inflation risk that doesn't exist? In fact, gold mining companies have been the ironic victims of inflation, so far anyway, instead of the beneficiary, because while inflation has certainly driven the cost of mining up, energy costs, labor costs, because investors don't expect inflation to stick around, they don't want to buy gold. So gold mining stocks have seen the cost of mining gold go up, But they haven't seen a commensurate increase in the price of gold because investors just don't get it in fact i just read that the u.s government has agreed to join other g7 nations in a ban on importing russian gold supposedly this is going to hit putin but it's actually going to hit americans who want to buy gold because they're going to have to pay higher prices actually we've probably done putin a favor by forcing him not to sell his gold because gold is still much too cheap And I'm sure Putin is more concerned about buying gold right now anyway than selling it. This is probably going to be another example where sanctions backfire. And as I said on a previous podcast, if people played chess the way they invested money, they would lose every game, particularly the institutions, because they never can see beyond the current move. But if you want to win at chess, you have to anticipate the moves that are coming next, not just the move you're making now or the move your opponent makes now. And that is what investors are missing. They are convinced that there's not going to be any inflation. But if they can only anticipate a few moves ahead, they would see that inflation is not only here to stay, but that it's going to get much worse. But because investors haven't been able to anticipate those future moves, this has actually been a very bad environment for gold mining stocks. But it's been an excellent environment to buy gold mining stocks because prices still reflect the false belief that long-term inflation is going to be low and contained when in reality it's going to be high and running out of control. But it was that optimism that inflation is going to get better, meaning that the rate is going to come down, that really helped power the stock market rally this week. In fact, the bond market also rallied For the same reason, if you look at the yield on the 12-month U.S. Treasury, now back below 3%. In fact, it's down to 2.75%. That's a pretty big move. The two-year U.S. Treasury is now back down to 3.06%. The five-year is 3.175. Last week, it almost hit 3.6%. 3.6%. The 10-year treasury rate down to 3.125 and the 30-year at three spot two five seven. In fact, the yield curve steepened and it is no longer inverted from the fives to the thirties. The 30-year treasury once again yields more than the five-year. You still have a slight inversion between the fives and the tens, but that may work itself out next week as the markets are now focusing more on recession than inflation. In fact, I pointed that out on my last podcast and in fact, it's the realization that the economy is either already in recession or soon will be that is actually causing the market to rally. Bad news is good news once again. Why? Because bad news on the economy is thought to be good news on inflation and good news on inflation means the Fed's going to back off on its rate hikes. In fact, The markets are already moving up their expectations for the next round of rate cuts. In fact, the markets are looking for the Fed to bring rates all the way back down to zero and relaunch quantitative easing if it ever even gets around to launching quantitative tightening. But what investors don't understand is that when it comes to QE and 0% interest rates, this time it really is different. Because the Federal Reserve was able to get away with that policy in the past. It was able to do it in the aftermath of the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Though with that bubble, the lowest rates got was 1% and the Fed never actually did quantitative easing. It didn't start that until the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis when rates did go to zero and we launched QE. But the Fed got away with it then and it got away with repeating the whole thing with COVID-19, but it's not going to be able to do it again. And the reason is during those past periods, The Fed was always able to hide behind the false pretense that inflation was below target. Since inflation was less than 2%, that provided the cover that the Fed needed to print all this money and keep interest rates artificially low because it could claim that policy was not an inflation risk. In fact, the risk was that there wasn't enough inflation. And so a policy that was designed to create needed inflation was okay. But the Fed could no longer maintain that ridiculous pretense because inflation is going to be way above 2% during this coming recession. And so the Fed is not going to be able to get away with justifying its monetary policy to stimulate the economy in an environment where inflation is already much too high. And that is the game changer. That's why it's different, because when the Fed does go back to a stimulative stance, which it will, it's going to have to do so in an environment of high inflation and even if the inflation rate comes down somewhat from its peak it's not going to go anywhere near two percent so either the fed is going to have to officially change its inflation target and maybe make it four percent and i doubt we'll even get down that low but changing it to four percent or abandoning it altogether is going to be the death knell for the dollar the dollar is not going to survive this next round of quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, the dollar is going to tank and that means gold is going to go through the roof. Investors are still not prepared for this outcome. They still think it's business as usual. They don't understand how much things have changed. In fact, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it rose for the third consecutive week in June, up another $1.9 billion on the week. It now stands at 8 Point nine three four trillion dollars. June was the month they were supposed to start quantitative tightening. Well, what are they waiting for? Well, obviously, it's a lot easier to talk about doing quantitative tightening than it is to actually tighten. Imagine how much worse the financial markets are going to be if the Fed actually does what it claims it's going to do with respect to shrinking its balance sheet. You know, the Federal Reserve likes to talk about how successful the quantitative easing program was. It wasn't successful. It was a complete disaster. And the proof that it was a disaster is the fact that the balance sheet is still near $9 trillion. You know, they initially blew the balance sheet up to $4.5 trillion and they tried to shrink it and look where we are, we're double the prior peak. You don't measure the success of the QE program by your ability to increase your balance sheet. That's the easy part. Success comes when you have to shrink the balance sheet back down. So only if the Fed can successfully pull off quantitative tightening will they ever be able to claim that quantitative easing was a success. Well, they couldn't do it before when the balance sheet was $4.5 How the hell are they going to do it now when the balance sheet is $9 trillion? The economy is far more levered up today than it was then. It's much easier to start taking drugs than to quit when you're an addict. And we are so addicted to cheap money that it is impossible to ever kick this habit, which is why the minute the economy starts to move into withdrawal, we're going to get another dose. And that is exactly what's coming, except this time it's going to be an overdose. And investors still don't understand that. If they did, they wouldn't be selling these gold stocks. They would be buying them like they're going out of style. I want to go over some of the bad economic news that was interpreted as good news by the stock market because it's more proof that the economy is not going to have a soft landing, that we're going to have a recession if we're not already in one, and that the Fed is going to have to back off on its hawkishness. We got the weekly unemployment claims, which continue to trend up, we got another week where claims exceeded expectations. They were looking for 225,000. We got 229,000. The prior week, which was initially reported at 229,000, that was revised up to 231,000. We're now at a five-month high in initial unemployment claims, and the four-week moving average has moved up to 223.5 Now, we haven't exploded higher, but we've clearly put in a bottom, and I am expecting an explosive move up in unemployment claims to hit any week. But I think what's even more significant bad news that was released at the same time on Thursday that we got those weekly unemployment claims was the numbers for the first quarter current account deficit, which was a shocker. Based on how bad it was, of course, it didn't shock me. I've been expecting bad numbers, although most people on Wall Street don't even pay attention to this number, despite the fact that it is extremely significant. Maybe they don't understand the significance, which is why they don't pay attention to it, or because this number has been so bad for so long without any apparent adverse consequences. Well, now it's gone from really bad to outright awful. The expectation was for a $277 billion deficit. It came out at $291.4 billion. That is an all-time record high. We've never had a quarterly current account deficit anywhere near that great. In fact, if you annualize the quarter, you're talking about almost $1.2 trillion dollars in annual current account deficit. There is no way to sustain that, especially considering the fact that it's going to go up.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.
0: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Now, the prior quarter was originally reported at $217.9 billion. That was revised up to $224.8 billion. But that is a huge quarter-over-quarter increase in that deficit and it's going to go much higher. Now, there's two things that are going to drive the current account deficit up into the stratosphere. Although it's already in the stratosphere, it's just going to move even higher up there is number one, our record trade deficits. But more important than our trade deficits is the net interest payments that we have to make to foreign holders of U.S. debt. Because America is the world's largest debtor nation. That means that foreigners own a lot more US government and corporate bonds than we own of their bonds. And so what that means is when interest rates go up, our net interest payments to foreign holders of our debt goes up. So when you have the Fed raising interest rates, that automatically increases our current account deficit because now we have to pay a higher interest rate to those foreigners that are holding our debt. Yes, foreigners are raising their rates too, but we don't hold nearly as much foreign debt as foreigners hold US debt. So whenever interest rates are rising, that's going to push up the current account deficit and that's going to put more downward pressure on the dollar because we have to send more dollars abroad to make these higher interest payments. That puts more downward pressure on the dollar. Now, right now that pressure isn't there because the dollar has been rising on the back of this hawkish Fed. But when the Fed becomes dovish, when the Fed has to fight recession instead of inflation, but inflation is still high and interest rates are still higher, the current account deficit is going to explode. And now you get this vicious cycle where a weakening dollar causes even more inflation causing higher interest rates, which in turn pushes the current account deficit higher, putting more downward pressure on the dollar, upward pressure on inflation and interest rates. And the cycle repeats and it becomes a death spiral for a currency and for an economy. And that's where we're headed. So this was more bad economic news that the markets didn't even focus on Because most investors don't even know enough about economics to understand how bad this news is, but eventually they will focus on it, but only when it becomes a crisis. But there was another more obvious piece of bad economic news that investors did focus on on Thursday, and that was the June PMI, which tanked to 51.2. That is a new five-month low, so a five-month high in first-time unemployment claims, a five-month low in the PMI. In fact, if you look at the manufacturing PMI, that sank from 57 down to 52.4, well below the 56 expectations. I believe that's about a two-year low. It's the lowest since June of 2020. And the service number, that dropped from 53.4 to 51.6. Expectations was for 53.3. Also, we got the Kansas City Manufacturing Index that came out weaker than expected. All of the economic news continues to disappoint, including the news that we got on Friday, the final read on consumer sentiment, which was originally reported at 50.2, which was an all-time record low for that survey, which goes back 44 years But the final read was 50 even. So now that's the new all-time record low. But I think this particular data point was the catalyst for the huge rally on Friday. Because contained within the consumer sentiment number is the long-term inflation expectation number. And this is what consumers believe the inflation rate is going to average for the next five to 10 years. And the last report, that number was at 3.3% and it improved a bit. Consumers are not quite as pessimistic. They're now looking for inflation to be just 3.1% for the next five to 10 years. And this is really what lit a fire under the stock market because apparently this is the type of good news that the Fed has been waiting for. To back off on its inflation fighting, first of all, if the consumer is right and inflation is going to be 3.1% for the next 5 to 10 years, that means the Fed still has a lot of work to do because the Fed is claiming that long-term inflation expectations are anchored at 2%. Well, anchors away, we're still well above 2% at 3.1%. So that is not good news unless you believe that the trend is going to continue and you're going to see that rate dramatically reduce. I don't think it is. In fact, I think the consumer is wildly optimistic. I think he's totally wrong to expect inflation of just 3.1%. I mean, maybe the consumer is closer to reality than bond market investors, but they're still in fantasy land. Inflation is going to be much higher than 3.1%. You know, there's still a lot of people that believe that inflation is a function of expectations. And so if consumers expect less inflation, we'll get less inflation. It's got nothing to do with consumers. It's got nothing to do with businesses. It's all about the government, the money supply, money printing, artificially low interest rates. All of that's going to continue. The budget deficits are going to continue. And so the Fed is going to be called on to monetize those budget deficits. And even though consumers don't expect a lot of inflation, they're going to be hit with a tremendous amount of inflation. They're going to be surprised by how much higher inflation actually ends up. I don't think the consumer is a good barometer on future inflation. I think they're being led astray. Maybe they're believing all this hype about how the government is going to fight inflation, how the government's going to bring down inflation, how the Fed is going to bring down inflation. And so the consumer is being influenced because he's being bombarded with all this propaganda on how the government is going to successfully reduce inflation, and so consumers are going to be surprised when inflation ends up being so much higher than what they expect, and obviously investors are going to be even more surprised. But what I think was also a big catalyst for this week's stock market rally was the two-day testimony of Fed Chair Powell on Capitol Hill in which he really for the first time acknowledged a much higher probability that the U.S. economy is headed for recession. And again, recession is good news for most investors who are worried about inflation and the Fed fighting inflation. And so a recession is exactly the relief that they believe the doctor ordered. It's just that they don't understand the nature of this disease and how recession won't cure it In fact, recession is going to make it worse. But I want to talk a little bit again about the Q&A portion of day two. This time, Powell was before the House of Representatives. Maxine Waters is the chairwoman of the committee. And of course, she started out by blaming all the inflation on corporate greed, on greedy landlords and on blatant profiteering. In other words, it's got nothing to do with the US government. It's got nothing to do with the deficits. It's got nothing to do with the money printing. It's all these greedy corporations who suddenly got greedy. I guess they weren't greedy in the past, but now all of a sudden that Biden's president All these greedy corporations decided to really stick it to their customers. The same thing with these landlords. They were nice guys until recently. They all became Simon Legree. Now they've grown out these long mustaches and they're twirling them around and they're jacking up their rents just because they're bad people. And it's just blatant profiteering, which somehow didn't exist in the past, but is now running rampant now. Of course, all this is complete nonsense. It is the epitome of hypocrisy. For someone like Maxine Waters to complain about inflation, to complain about how people are suffering from inflation and then blaming other people. The reason that people are suffering from inflation is because Maxine Waters spent all this money on government programs and the cost of these programs is inflation. She didn't have the honesty to come clean with her constituents and tell them that they were going to have to pay for all these big government programs that she's voting for. And so she stuck them with the bill through inflation. And so now she's complaining that her constituents are struggling with inflation when she is the one that placed that burden on their backs. But it's not just the Democrats who were trying to blame everybody but the Fed or Biden For inflation that pissed me off. It's the Republicans too, because some of these Republican congressmen are making some very good points by pointing out the Biden deficits and the stimulus under Biden, but they completely ignore the fact that Donald Trump did the same thing. They ignore the fact that Republicans voted for this deficit spending while Trump was president. Republicans wrote the COVID playbook. The Democrats were just following the book. Maybe they were adding some pages, expanding on the plays, but it's the basic same strategy. So the mistakes were originally made with the very first COVID plans. In fact, the Republicans always like to praise the Fed. Yes, it was initially necessary. The first round of COVID stimulus, we needed that. We just didn't need the second round that we did under Biden. No, the first one was a mistake too. And Republicans look like hypocrites when they blame Biden for his deficits, but excuse Trump's for his, they need to be consistent. And of course, nobody is consistent in Washington. I've been consistent. I've been consistently criticizing deficit spending under both political parties. And I said at the time that the Trump deficits were gonna come back to bite the Republicans because they would look like hypocrites. For criticizing them now so far maybe that prediction is wrong because the republicans are gaining in the polls the democrats are sinking maybe this hypocrisy doesn't actually ring true on the part of a lot of americans maybe they're buying the idea that it was necessary to do this stimulus early on but then it was too much of a good thing so the voters may be buying it now but eventually it's going to be a much harder message for the republicans to sell A straw man that congressional Democrats were raising with respect to inflation was that they were trying to claim that if U.S. inflation was Biden's fault, how does that explain high inflation in Europe? After all nobody in Germany got a Biden stimulus check. And so if they have inflation in Germany without anybody getting a Biden stimulus check, well, then clearly Biden's checks didn't create inflation in the United States. Now, again, part of the problem is for the Republicans to try to put 100% of the blame on Biden and none of the blame on Trump when it was the same policies by both presidents. But clearly, just because Biden and the Fed are not responsible for inflation in Europe, that doesn't let them off the hook for being responsible for inflation in America. In fact, European politicians and central bankers made many of the same mistakes that American politicians and central bankers made. So they're having inflation in Europe for the same reasons we're having inflation in America. In Europe and America, we printed too much money. Governments ran big deficits, central banks monetized those deficits by buying government bonds, and that's why we have inflation. But Republicans make it easier for Democrats to lie about the cause of inflation because they're lying about the cause of it themselves. One of the most important things you can do for your family is is to protect them with life insurance because the people who depend on you the most need something to fall back on if in the unfortunate event, you're no longer there to provide the financial support that they depend on. A lot of people make the mistake of buying a whole life policy when what they really need is term because when you buy whole life, you end up spending a lot more money on the premiums which means you can't afford to buy nearly as much coverage. Sure, whole life policies allow you to build cash value but what's important to your family is not how much cash value you build up if you live, but how much cash they get if you don't. Plus, any money you save by paying lower premiums can be used to make actual investments that should perform much better than a whole life policy. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for up to $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone or a laptop at a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved and there's no hidden fees and you can cancel at any time. And if you change your mind in the first 30 days, you can get a full refund ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims and since life insurance costs more as you get older now's the best time to cross that off your list so go to ladderlife.com goal today to see if you're instantly approved that's l-a-d-d-e-r life.com slash goal today to see if you're instantly approved Another point, though, that I thought that Powell made that was ridiculous is that even though he has opened himself up to the possibility of recession, and by the way, I think when we get the Atlanta Fed GDP Now numbers next week, they're going to now have a negative forecast for Q2 GDP, which means they will be forecasting a recession. And remember- I was forecasting that the U.S. economy would be in recession in the first half of 2022 in 2021. In fact, I was predicting a negative GDP number for the first quarter before we got that number. So I think this is another prediction that is going to be borne out. But even though the Fed is open to the possibility that we may have a recession, according to Powell, he expects strong GDP growth in the second half of the year. So even if we're already in recession, Powell thinks it's over. He thinks we're gonna have strong GDP growth in the second half of the year. Why? Where would that come from? I mean, he's just talking. He's just making this stuff up. Basically, nothing he says should be credible when he's making such outlandish forecasts like strong growth in the second half of the year. But that forecast wasn't even close to the most ridiculous thing Powell said. One of the Republican congressmen asked Powell if the Federal Reserve considers the impact that rising interest rates makes on the federal government and its $31 trillion national debt, because every time the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, It increases the interest expense to the federal government of paying interest on the national debt, and therefore it makes the federal budget deficits much larger, which obviously is an important component of your expected economic growth, and in particular inflation, because if the government is running larger deficits- that means the Federal Reserve may be put in a position to monetize those larger deficits, meaning that there'll be even more future inflation as a result of the Fed's current efforts to fight inflation. By fighting inflation, it causes inflation because it causes larger budget deficits, which it then must monetize. But the answer to the question was no. Powell said with a straight face that the Federal Reserve did not even consider the impact of rising interest rates on the federal budget. I mean, that is an outright lie. I mean, how could they not consider it? It would be completely irresponsible and reckless not to consider it. It's like not considering the elephant in a room. How can you not consider it? Of course, they consider it, but they don't want to acknowledge that they consider it because then he might have to mention the problems that it creates. So instead of leveling with Congress about what an enormous problem rising interest expense is going to be, not only on the federal budget. But on the economy and on the Fed's ability to contain inflation, he makes the asinine contention that it isn't even something that the Federal Reserve considers. Well, obviously, if they don't consider such important information, well, this is why their forecasts are so bad. How do you expect the Fed to be accurate in its forecasts when it admits to being completely oblivious to the most important economic data that would bear on those forecasts. But once again, as with his testimony before the US Senate, I think the most outrageous answers were the ones that Powell did not give. And that was with respect to questions that congressmen had of the Fed as to the impact that proposed legislation might have on inflation. You have a lot of Republican congressmen who are asking Powell's opinion They have legislation that they're considering voting on. Inflation is a big problem. He is supposedly one of the smartest men in the room, at least when it comes to economics and inflation. He's supposed to be the smartest man in that room. That's why he's Fed chairman. So you have all these people who are gathered together for a hearing to hear what this expert has to say. We have a big problem, inflation. Everybody is united in a desire to get rid of inflation. So you have these Republicans asking a question to the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Hey, here's some legislation. If we enact this legislation, will it make inflation worse? Should we reconsider it? Now, of course, the Republicans know the correct answer. They're only asking it because they're trying to embarrass the Democrats. But put that aside, if this really is a hearing, then they're supposed to be there to hear some advice from Powell. But Powell refuses to answer those questions because he doesn't want to embarrass the Democrats. He knows the answer. Powell knows that larger budget deficits are inflationary. He just doesn't want to admit that. So he hides behind the idea that the Fed is independent. And he keeps saying, hey, we're independent, and so we can't comment on legislation. That is pure BS. Commenting on legislation doesn't jeopardize your independence. In fact, it's refusing to comment on legislation that you know is bad. That's what jeopardizes your independence. If Powell believes that the government is pursuing bad policies as an independent central banker, his job is to criticize those bad policies. If he bites his tongue, if he's saying, well, I don't want to say anything that's critical of legislation, well, then he's being political. He is refusing to take an independent stance. He is sacrificing the Fed's independence. The very reason the Fed is supposed to be independent is so it can be independent to criticize Bad legislation. So you have congressmen asking an independent Fed in your independent judgment, would it be a mistake to forgive student loans? If we're trying to fight inflation, would forgiving student loans be inflationary? Powell should answer that question, not hide behind the fact that he's supposedly independent. If he was independent, he'd answer it. Or when the Republicans are asking Powell if more deficit spending is going to complicate his efforts to fight inflation, Powell should say, of course it's going to make it harder. It's going to make it more difficult for me to fight inflation if the federal government is stimulating demand because he is trying to reduce demand. Powell stated that the goal of higher interest rates is to reduce aggregate demand. Well, if the government is pursuing fiscal stimulus designed to increase aggregate demand. Obviously, fiscal policy would be at odds with monetary policy. Why can't he comment on that? Again, the reason that Powell doesn't want to comment is because he doesn't want to criticize policies of the Biden administration and of the Democratic Party, which again proves that he is beholden to Biden and the Democrats, Powell believes that he is a member of that administration, and so the whole idea that the Fed is independent is a complete farce, and the fact that Powell hides behind the myth of independence to avoid criticizing the Biden administration proves conclusively that the Federal Reserve isn't independent at all. I want to finish up today's podcast, though, by talking about the Supreme Court decision finally announced officially on Friday that the 1973 Roe versus Wade controversial Supreme Court decision that basically established abortion as a right that state legislatures could not infringe on was finally overturned, a 6-3 to decision, so not even really close, twice as many justices voting to overturn Roe as those voting to uphold it. And I just wanted to weigh in with my opinion in support of the court. I believe the court decided correctly on Friday it was incorrect in 1973 in reading into the Constitution a right that does not exist. Now, a lot of people think, Peter, you're a libertarian. Why are you against a woman's right to choose? Why aren't you pro-choice? I am pro-choice but I understand that my right to swing my fist stops at your face. Yes, I have a right to choose to do things, but I don't have a right to choose to do things that harm other people. You see, the abortion controversy has never really been about a woman's right to choose. It's about the rights of the unborn to live. There is no question that constitutionally all Americans have a right to live. The only question is, when does life begin? Because the Constitution doesn't establish when life begins. The Constitution is silent. And in areas where the Constitution is silent, the framers have left those decisions to the states. So it's up to the states to decide when life begins, not the federal government. So when does life begin? Does it begin at birth? Does it begin at conception? Or does it begin somewhere in between? Obviously, if life doesn't begin until birth, well, then the unborn child has no right to live. But that is really an absurd position to take. I think every pro-choice person would agree that a mother does not have a right to kill her child a week after it's born. It's not like you could take the child home from the doctor and decide, I'm really not cut up for being a mother. This kid makes a lot of noise. It's keeping me up at night. It keeps crying. It keeps pooping. I just don't want it. And I'm just going to kill the baby. Nobody would agree that that's allowed. Everybody would say that that's murder. If you don't want that baby a week after it's born, you got to put it up for adoption. I mean, that's a choice that you have, but you can't take that life. Well, there's very little practical difference between a baby and a week after birth, and a week before birth. I mean, a baby could be born a week premature, completely healthy. And so obviously, if you can't kill a baby a week after it's born, you can't kill it a week before it's born. And so then the question is, well, what about a month before, two months before, three months before, five months before? Well, these questions need to be answered legislatively because governments need to protect life. But In this case, it's the state governments. Because remember, all the laws against murder, these are state laws. These are not federal laws. So it's up to the state governments to create these laws, not the Supreme Court, not the federal government. And that's going to happen. The states are going to now, given this power, are going to decide when life begins and then craft their abortion laws around those decisions. Now, I think it's absurd to claim that life doesn't begin until birth. Well, I think it's equally absurd to claim that it begins at conception. Now, there are some people on the extreme pro-life camp that believe that from the moment of conception, you can't have an abortion. I think most states are not going to agree with that definition. I mean, to me, if you're going to say that terminating a pregnancy A day after it happens is murder. Well, then preventing a pregnancy from happening can also be murder. I mean, what's the difference between a day before conception and a day after? There are a lot of people that want to outlaw the morning after pill on the grounds that, hey, there's already been a conception and now you're having an abortion. So I think most states are going to find some happy medium. Clearly, if a woman gets pregnant by accident. She doesn't want to have a baby. She'll have plenty of time in most cases to make a decision whether or not she wants to have a lawful abortion. If you want to wait until the third trimester, well, in many states, you're not going to be able to have an abortion, but there's no reason to wait so long because you find out you're pregnant generally, I don't know, Eight, 10 weeks in, you know if you're pregnant, you've missed a period or two, you've taken a home pregnancy test, you know that you're pregnant, you know if you want that child or not, and you can make a determination as to whether or not you wanna have an abortion. Now, if there are some states that actually outlaw abortion, meaning that whenever you have a pregnancy, no matter when you find out at any point, it's completely illegal, I think the only exception that some states would have if they want to take a very strict stance and prohibit abortion, even in situations of rape or incest, would be the life of the mother. I don't think there's any state that would say that a woman could not have an abortion to save her own life. Because after all, we are allowed to kill a living person to save our own life. So if somebody is a threat to me and they're alive... I can kill that person in self-defense. Well, if my unborn baby is a threat to my own life, well, then I have the same right of killing in self-defense. So I think you're always gonna have the ability to terminate a pregnancy to the extent that carrying that pregnancy to term would threaten the life of the mother. But if you happen to live in a state that outlaws abortion completely, well, you've gotta go to another state to have an abortion it is not going to be illegal if you live in one state and abortion is completely illegal it will not be illegal for you to get in your car and drive to another state or hop on a bus or hop on a train or hop on a plane now is that a little bit inconvenient for you if you happen to live in a state that doesn't allow abortions and you wanted an abortion yes it's inconvenient but life is full of inconveniences. You know, maybe people who live in states that don't allow abortions, well, maybe they'll take extra precaution not to get pregnant. Maybe they'll make sure they use the right birth control because they know if they get pregnant and they don't want the baby, it's gonna be a little bit more inconvenient for you to have an abortion. Maybe if you think you're gonna have a lot of abortions for whatever reason, well, maybe you wanna relocate to another state. The way I look at it, all the states have different laws. Take gambling, for example. There are some states where gambling is legal. You can go into a casino. You can play blackjack. You can play craps. But a lot of states, casino gambling is illegal and you can't gamble. Well, what do you do if you live in a state that doesn't allow gambling and you want to gamble? Well, you get in a car, you get in a plane, and you go to Las Vegas and you gamble and then you go home. You're allowed to do that. Now, let's say there's somebody who wants to gamble a lot. They wanna gamble every week. Well, then they probably move to Las Vegas because now they're living in a state that allows gambling. So the same thing can happen. If you live in a state that doesn't allow abortions, you can move to a state that does. Just like the recent example with COVID and the masks. I mean, if you want to live in a state that doesn't require everybody to wear a mask, well, then you can go to that state. And if you want to live in a state that has all these mandates for masks, well, then you can live in that state. Americans are mobile, there's nothing that stops Americans from picking up and moving into states that have a political environment that is more compelling. People move because of tax reasons. You live in a state with high taxes, you don't want high taxes, move to a state with low taxes. So now abortion will just be another thing that people might consider when it comes to where they want to live. If you want to have a lot of abortions, then you want to live in a state that has very liberal abortion laws. But what's always really bothered me about most Democrats and their pro-choice stance when it comes to abortion is that the only time Democrats are pro-choice is when it comes to abortion. For everything else, they want to deny my right to make a choice. They want the government to choose for me. They're in favor of all of these laws which deny the basic right to choose. I mean, just take the example of the vaccinations, how many Democrats were in favor of mandatory vaccinations. I mean, can't people have the right to choose whether or not you want to take a vaccination or not? That seems to be a real choice. Yet the Democrats, in many cases, were opposed to individuals being able to choose whether or not they wanted to have a vaccine. Now, the Democrats are generally a little better than Republicans when it comes to other choices with respect to drugs. They're more likely to support Legalizing marijuana and maybe even heroin or cocaine or other drugs. But Republicans in general are opposed to those choices. But those are choices. If you are pro choice, people should be able to choose to smoke marijuana. They should even be able to choose to snort cocaine or inject heroin. People are free to make bad choices. All you're hurting is yourself when you're doing those drugs. Although it's not just these illegal drugs, prescription drugs. There are a lot of drugs that the government only allows you to consume if the FDA approves them. Why? Why don't I, as a free American, have a right to choose to use any drug that I want? If I believe a drug is gonna be helpful, if my doctor agrees with me that it's gonna be helpful, why should I be denied the right to choose to use that drug just because some bureaucrat at the FDA has decided that it's not efficacious. What about the minimum wage law? The Democrats want to set a minimum wage, well, what about the right of a worker to choose to accept a job that pays less than the minimum wage? Well, the Democrats want to deny individuals that right. They want to say, no, you can't accept the job, even if you want the job, even if you think it's going to be very beneficial for your career, even if you think it's going to be a good learning experience, we want to deny you the right to choose to accept that job. What about saving for your own retirement? Do Democrats support the right to choose not to participate in Social Security? Absolutely not. Everybody is forced to contribute to Social Security even if they would rather save for their own retirement. No, the government wants to take that choice away from you and mandate a government Ponzi scheme to be the basis of your retirement. What about your right to work with a stockbroker who is not also a member of FINRA? Because the government has taken away that right. Because in order for you to have a stockbroker, that stockbroker must be a member of FINRA. I'm a member of FINRA. I hate FINRA. I would never voluntarily join FINRA, but the government has taken away that choice. The government has told me if I want to be a stockbroker, I must be a member of FINRA. And the government tells all Americans who want to work with stockbrokers, you can only work with a stockbroker provided that stockbroker is a member of FINRA. You know, the same thing happens with lawyers. You just can't pick any lawyer. If you want a lawyer to represent you in court, that lawyer has to be a member of the bar. But why can't I choose to be represented by a lawyer who, Who is not a member of the bar? If you look at the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, it says that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the assistance of counsel for his defense. It doesn't say the assistance of a counsel who is also the member of a bar, it just says assistance of counsel. So any counsel, they don't even have to be a lawyer. You should be able to have anybody represent you, whether or not they've gone to law school, whether or not they're a member of the bar, you should have the right to choose who your counsel is as provided by the Sixth Amendment, but the government has denied your right to choose and limited your choices to only include members of the bar. Now, I can go on and on about the hypocrisy of claiming to be pro-choice, yet only being pro-choice in that narrow example when it comes to abortions and anti-choice in almost every other circumstances. But the other problem is in the choice of abortion, you're actually involving a second human being. You're involving the unborn child. All these other choices that the Democrats want to restrict, they don't involve two people. They only involve one. And so in that circumstance, they have no constitutional right to restrict choice, yet they do it anyway. But then in this one case where they actually do have a right to restrict choice, they claim they don't. But the hypocrisy of a lot of Democrats is not limited to choice. It also extends to privacy. You see, a big part of that Roe v. Wade decision was the Ninth Amendment and the right to privacy, which the Supreme Court said included the right to an abortion. If you read the Ninth Amendment, It states that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And in fact, when they were debating in Continental Congress whether or not to even include a Bill of Rights as part of the Constitution, the reason some people were opposed to the Bill of Rights is because some people thought that by listing some rights, you would exclude other rights that would normally be there. And so that's why the Ninth Amendment is there. They're basically saying, look, we've listed some rights here in the Bill of Rights, but just because we list some doesn't mean that those that we forgot to include don't exist. All the rights exist we're just going to highlight certain rights, but by highlighting certain rights, we don't mean to imply that these are our only rights. There are other rights that we have that are not enumerated in the Constitution. And one of those rights, and I agree with the Supreme Court, is privacy. Privacy is a fundamental right of being American. I mean, that's why you have the Fourth Amendment, right, to protect you against unreasonable searches and seizure. It has to do with the privacy of your personal books and records. So privacy, I agree with the Supreme Court, is a right, but it has absolutely nothing to do with abortion. Abortions are not part of privacy. But the irony is, while you have all these Democrats who believe that people have a right to privacy, and so therefore they have a right to an abortion whenever they want, they don't believe that right extends to anything else. In fact, most Democrats and Republicans, I'm not being partisan here, most Democrats and Republicans believe that Americans have absolutely no privacy at all. In fact, up until recently, about the only thing you could do in private was have an abortion, because for all practical purposes, privacy has been completely destroyed in the United States? I mean, think about the federal income tax. Think about all the personal information that you are required to turn over to the US government. I mean, what privacy do you have left after you finish filling out your tax return? But it's not just the federal income tax. Look at the Patriot Act and all the other laws that have been passed pursuant to the Patriot Act all these money laundering laws, it's all about a complete abolition of privacy. When you open up a bank account, you open up a brokerage account, your banker, your broker is spying on you. You have zero financial privacy. Nothing that you do is private. Everybody is required to ask you all sorts of questions about your finances. You're depositing this money. Where did you get it? How do you intend to use it? Historically, that's nobody's business, but your own. How you got your money, what you're doing with your money, how much money you have, where you're putting your money, these were always considered private things that people did not have to share with their neighbors, let alone their government. Well, there's no privacy at all. In fact, the Patriot Act should not have been named the Patriot Act. The name of that act, if there was any truth in legislation, would have been the Abolition of Privacy Act the Anti-Privacy Act, because that act was all about destroying privacy. Now, I didn't see any Democrats objecting to the Patriot Act on the grounds that it violated our right to privacy. Yes, they're all in favor of your right to privacy when it comes to the privacy of having an abortion, but so many other things that you'd want to do in private or so many other things that you want to keep private as far as the Democrats and the Republicans are concerned, you have absolutely no right to privacy. What would really be great would be to see the Supreme Court start striking down a lot of these laws that do violate Americans' right to privacy that does exist under the Ninth Amendment. And while they're at it, since they're overturning bad precedent, there's a lot of other cases that have been wrongly decided when it comes to the Commerce Clause, when it comes to paper money, when it comes to taxation. There are all sorts of Supreme Court decisions that are as bad or worse than Roe versus Wade that need to be overturned. The sad part, though, is that they probably won't be.